0: We all have the tools that we need. You know, we can, we're waiting for a vaccine, we're hoping for a vaccine, we're hoping for drugs. But within us, we each know how we can prevent this infection from touching us, and at the same time, prevent others from getting infected.
1: welcome to the fifth edition of our webcast series brought to you by Investec wealth and investment markets and investing in a time of covid 19. i'm kukuletumfupi a south african-based financial journalist and broadcaster and i had the pleasure of being your moderator for today now in previous conversations we've spoken to a myriad of investment analysts economists as well as asset allocation professionals in really trying to peel back the layers of what this particular pandemic means for our world in a wealth and investment creation space. We've had well over 7,000 people connected to this particular webinar from all over the world and we look forward to participating and interacting with you as we warmly welcome you to this platform once again. Now in today's conversation we look to take a more intimate look as to the outlet and the role that COVID-19 has played in the lives of many across the globe. The individuals we'll speak to today can be described as foot soldiers who have been on the ground, interacting and fighting this particular pandemic. Now, in recent weeks, we've managed to gain more insight and data as to how countries world over have actually managed to fight this particular pandemic and as such flatten the curve. We'll analyze some of this data, get an understanding as to what it means for human interaction and, of course, peel back at the implications that this has on our economic and investment climate. But let's get into the conversation for today, and let me do that by introducing our first guest, Professor David Heyman. He's a professor of infectious disease epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He's also the head of the Center of Global Health Security at Chatham House in London. Brief background on Professor Heyman while he also chairs the Scientific and Technical Advisory Group for Infectious Hazards, the External Advisory Group at the World Health Organization Emergencies Programme, which is leading the current response to the COVID-19 epidemic. We've also been based previously for 13 years in sub-Saharan Africa on assignment from CDC, where he worked in Cameroon, Cote d'Ivoire, DRC, and Malawi. During his time, he's worked and participated in response to the first, second, and third outbreaks of Ebola in the DRC. Our next guest is Carly Drinkwater. She's a language teacher and a blogger who moved to Italy six months ago and has subsequently found herself in the midst of a lengthy lockdown that Italy is still currently experiencing. She'll be sharing some perspective with us as to what her experience on the ground in Italy has been. And of course, our final guest is Richard Cardo, portfolio manager at Investic Wealth and Investment in Cape Town. Now, Richard co-manages the Global Leaders Portfolio, which is jointly run out of South Africa and the UK. Richard and his family have now recovered from COVID-19, so is really well positioned, not only to give us some insight into the numbers, but a personal experience as to what being infected with COVID-19 actually means. A warm welcome to all three of you, and we're looking forward to this conversation. Rick, I'd like to start with you. I think for many of us uh, who haven't necessarily experienced this particular virus or have come close into contact with anyone else who has, we're still uncertain as to uh, what the experience fully encompasses. But for you personally, Rick, what has the experience been like and has it been typical of any other flu symptoms that you've had?
2: Thanks, Guru. Yeah, well, certainly not a pleasant experience. Um, I was a local transmission case and I picked up the... uh, COVID-19 from an elderly relative who had been staying with us from the UK. Um, She had shown no symptoms through the period, um, but she had gone for a a test as a kind of precautionary measure, um, just to ensure her safe passage back to the UK prior to South Africa going into lockdown on the 27th of March. We then heard that she had tested positive uh, later on the evening of the same day that I started experiencing my own symptoms at the office. Uh, I then went for a test the very next day and received a positive result two days later, which was obviously quite a shock. So my symptoms at the office, uh, which as I say started on that afternoon of the 13th of or 19th of March, included sore, blurry eyes, being lightheaded, and fever and shivers. And it was really the fever and shivers for me that sort of suggested straight away that uh, this was something that was a bit irregular. So I packed up and left the office and phoned my boss uh, from the car on the way home to tell him that uh, you know, I was going home. Uh, the next day, which was the day of testing, I had a really achy body and fatigue. Uh, still sore eyes and quite lightheaded. Um, then over that weekend, uh, the symptoms did seem to get worse. I'd call it almost a bad episode of flu. Uh, the symptoms included chronic sinus, congestion. I spent quite a bit of time trying to decongest and that was quite a worry um, with that congestion and it seemed to cause quite a bit of shortness of breath which I guess through the whole ordeal was probably the most worrying aspect for me. Uh, During sort of that day three to six I still had a sore body and stomach cramps and at certain times I felt quite nauseous. Um, Interestingly I did have a bit of a dry cough but no sore throat which is kind of widely reported as a symptom of, of corona. Um, also, it was quite worrying during that period, just trying to get your head around whether you know I was getting any better, <laughs> was I close to, to kind of the end, or was worse still to come. And that sort of panned out from day seven to ten. Um, you know, the sinus and congestion was very much still there, but the shortness of breath had gone away, which was a massive relief. Uh, and then, very interestingly, probably on in the last two days, days nine and ten, uh, I started getting a fever and shivers again. Which again was quite worrying because it was almost, you know, a concern that kind of I was relapsing. But now that I think back in retrospect, I think that was my body, my body finally rejecting and expelling the virus. Um, and from then on, I have started to improve quite rapidly. Um, you know, from from a mental perspective, obviously throughout the the kind of ordeal, I was quite anxious, um, particularly anxious that I hadn't infected any of my colleagues or at work. I mean, they'd all gone into self-isolation immediately. Investec was very good about that uh, on the very day that I went for my testing. Um, My wife had also tested positive. Uh, She had had similar kind of symptoms to myself, uh, but with no fever, aches, or shivers. Uh, She had more fatigue than I did at the outset, and she certainly did lose her uh, smell and taste. Mm. Uh, Her symptoms probably lasted about three or four days uh, less than a minded. My son, my 15 year old son was asymptomatic through the period as was my 13 year old daughter and I would say from about day 12 I started to recover fully. Um, Not quite fully, I still feel a bit weak and lethargic. Uh, I'm a fit person, I like to exercise daily and I certainly uh, haven't been up to doing that.
1: That, that paints a very clear perspective uh, for us there, there, Rick. But I can just imagine that even for you personally, having experienced this, having your family gone through this journey with you, it su- certainly must change how you reflect and review uh, news headlines as well as recent updates in terms of uh, COVID-19. Has anything changed for you in terms of how you reflect and your perspective on this particular outbreak?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Gugu. I think in some ways I, I've tried to shield myself away from the plethora of daily news and sometimes quite... Uh, sensationalist news, I guess, and trying to figure out what's fact from fiction. Uh, but what's quite clear for me is that this virus doesn't discriminate. Anyone can get it. Anyone can spread it. And clearly there are different severities to it, as, as witnessed within my own family. Um, what was interesting for me is that I had different symptoms at different points. So, you know, you kind of had this ebb and flow of concern and uncertainty about what would happen next. Um, and not being in control of the situation for which, you know, for someone like me was was something difficult to deal with. Um, there was certainly also an instinct of self-preservation um, and also appreciating my own kind of limitations. Uh, what was interesting is, you know, as the virus kind of went along, the illness went along, it, it felt as if it was trying to exploit my weakest points and attack some of the, the weak points. Um, and you had to really fight these mini battles along the way, which, which was interesting. Um, so kind of the key takeaways for me, I guess, would be, uh, you know, you've got to follow the medical protocols of social distancing and isolation. We did that very thoroughly. Uh, you need to be resilient. I mean, it was good to, to be a healthy and fit person going into this ordeal, um, but you've really got to work on, on remaining mentally positive and strong throughout. I think that's kind of key. Um, Just from a work perspective, I mean, it was reassuring for me to know that there are four of our senior portfolio managers managing the global leaders' portfolio. We've got a whole team of analysts and trade implementers too behind the process. Uh, It's the kind of way we we manage money at Investec on a collegiate basis. So, you know, it was reassuring to know that the wheels were sort of still turning smoothly. Um, Also important to know that we, we do get an outpouring of concern, kindness and support in various shapes and forms from family, friends and work colleagues from shopping to us to kind of regularly checking in on us, albeit from a, a virtual basis. Um, so, so you know, that, that was obviously reassuring and kept our hopes up. Um, so yeah, as I sit here today, I guess I just have a bit of a, a more renewed respect for life, what's important, uh, perhaps what to sweat and not sweat, and a greater appreciation of, of some of the daily things we may take for granted in the form of family and friends. I'm certainly a little bit more thankful too. Thank you.
1: Kelly, not sweating the small stuff anymore. And Prof, this is where I'd like to bring you in to uh, share some, some perspective with us. From what we're seeing across the globe, cities are under lockdown, nations are under lockdown. And, and judging by some of the figures that have come through, it does seem as though there's some evidence that we are gaining ground in terms of flattening the curve. But in terms of your analysis as well as the models that you've run uh, what is the what are the figures and the findings actually showing in terms of how far we are uh, in uh, gaining significant ground against covid-19
0: since the beginning of this pandemic there's been a lot learned but we still don't understand two major factors about the epidemic we don't understand the actual transmissibility of this virus how easily It transmits from person to person, though we're getting a better understanding of that by some of the surveys that are going on in communities to look for people who have had the infection during the past three or four months. So we're beginning to understand better the transmissibility and we're also beginning to understand better the spectrum of disease. We just heard Rick talk about his illness. Others have no signs or symptoms at all as his children. And so we're beginning to understand that this is a a disease which affects different people in different ways. And the elderly especially are at great risk of not only disease, but of needing ventilation, mechanical ventilation and death. So we're seeing we're understanding more about the disease. And that will help us as we begin to understand how countries can stop this forced physical distancing that they've caused by shutting down social events and other activities Within countries. Within the next few months, within the next few weeks rather, countries will be uh, determining whether or not they can unlock certain sectors based on what they're finding from the studies of antibody about who is infected now, who might have been infected in the past. So we're making great progress. And I would say by the uh, time that Easter comes next week or afterwards, there will be risk assessments in every country to see what they can possibly transition out of now as the um, lockdown is ended, but at the same time having in place measures which will be sure that they can monitor what's going on and make sure that the, the transmission doesn't increase and in Europe overwhelm hospitals again.
1: Prof, some interesting insight that uh, you've uh, shared with us earlier was the fact that uh, there's been increased uh, focus on the lockdown programs, on uh, the masks, as well as availability of testing. Are there any updates uh, in terms of uh, where we are as a globe in moving forward in this direction Uh, and also using these elements and tools to uh, limit the level of infections?
0: Yes, well, the World Health Organization regularly reassesses its guidance based on new evidence. And right now, they're looking at three different issues. They're looking at mask use, they're looking at um, lockdowns and how to transition out of those, and they're looking at testing and what are the best strategies for testing. For mask use, it's clear that masks have a role in protecting others. So if you or I have signs and symptoms, as had Rick, of of this infection, we're coughing or sneezing or have some other problems, we should be wearing a mask to protect others from the droplets that we're creating that are infected. That's in addition to social distancing from those persons, being sure we stay away. At the same time, masks are very important for health workers, especially N95 masks, which have a small filter in them. As long as they're wearing masks and other personal protective equipment such as a visor to protect their eyes, but masks don't really have a role in protecting individuals as they walk down the streets. The best way to protect yourself is to physical distance, wash your hands, and make sure that you stay away from surfaces that might be contaminated. As far as lockdowns go, um, the next issue that's been discussed Um, Countries will be doing their own risk assessments based on studies that they're doing now in communities to determine the level of transmission that has occurred during the preceding few weeks. So they'll be looking to see how many people have been transmitted, have infection, and possibly they'll find, for example, that school children don't have a great bit of infection. So then they could consider opening up the school sector first and putting children back at work. A whole series of things that will be determined based on where they think they are in controlling the outbreaks. And the third issue that's been discussed is testing. And there are two types of testing. As Rick had, there's testing for acute disease to make sure sure that you have infection or don't have infection. This is done mainly for people who are sick. But in some cases, it's done for contacts of people who are sick to see whether or not they're also infected and can be isolated. At the same time, there are antibody studies which tell of past history of infection, which have been developed in laboratories, and they're being used in community surveys. These are not tests that individuals can use or rapid tests. They're tests that are very complicated in laboratories. But there are also point-of-care diagnostic tests, tests that can be used by individuals like a pregnancy test to see whether or not They've been infected. And these tests need to be validated to be sure that they're picking up only the antibody to the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 and not other coronaviruses, which also circulate in humans and cause a common cold. So that's an update of what WHO is doing this week.
1: Thanks for the clarity in terms of the lockdown, because we do uh, witness in the news headlines that Wuhan, I understand, uh, has tried to go back to a sense of normality in terms of uh, interaction amongst its citizens. But one particular country which uh, faces ongoing pressure has to be Italy. And Carly, uh, I'd like to bring you in here to share some of your insight with us. You've been in Italy for well over six months now, have found yourself in the midst of what has been a quite an unprecedented lockdown in terms of time. But what does this meant just for the mood and the environment uh, that you're experiencing currently in Italy?
3: Well, we're now in week five of lockdown. This is day 30. And in the last week, there's actually been a sense of hope because this lockdown has been extremely intense for us here in Italy. It's not a case of just staying at home and we've been allowed still some kind of normality and some liberties. We have none. We can't even go outside for a walk. The only thing that we're allowed to do is go to the supermarket because that's essential needs to buy food or go to the pharmacy. But everything is done with a high level of bureaucracy, documentation. You need to keep it with you on all times in your ID. You actually need to specify which supermarket you're going to because when the police do their patrols and and check, they will see which road you're on and they'll verify what your address is, what the supermarket is, and if you're on a route that doesn't make sense, then you could be fined. Uh, And that's one response of the Italian government is to uh, dole out very high fines, up to thousands of euros for people breaking the decree. It's been taken extremely seriously here in Italy. However, over the past week, it seems like all our efforts are starting to work. The number of cases and deaths are starting to drop. So we feel more hopeful than we did before. There may be light at the end of the tunnel, However, there are unintended consequences of of that. And because we have seen that there is an effect of our containment, our isolation, some people, a very small handful of people have started to get frustrated clearly because we had a record number of fines at the weekend. And that means people are going out of their homes for non-essential needs. That's the reason you would get a fine. Um, So we have been told that the country will reassess after Easter, as the professor uh, mentioned there. But actually there isn't an end date to this. We don't know when life will go back to normal and we have been reminded that it will take a long, long time before life resumes as it did before.
1: Collie, you're so lucky to be a blogger um, and you can manage to work um, at home despite the lockdown period at the moment. But I can imagine for those who are currently unemployed or still reeling from the economic ramifications in Italy, uh, that this can have a significant psychological impact on them. How, how have you been de- de- dealing um, with, with uh, the psychological effects? And uh, have you had any interactions with some of your peers to, to get an
3: understanding as to where they are in terms of their
1: frame of mind?
3: We are all struggling, it's been a real test, a very difficult emotional, mental, physical challenge. Um, I can work from home for the school I work for, but my salary was cut. My uh, fiance is a physiotherapist, but he's freelance, so he effectively lost his job overnight as soon as the decree um, came into force. And he was not working in a hospital, he was a freelance physiotherapist working in retirement homes, so he lost his job overnight we're all impacted greatly by this um, of course there's a lot of worry there's a lot of worry from people i know here who have small businesses because italy is a nation of small businesses a lot of a lot of people are self-employed so there is fear about what will happen after this economically but of course right now we're going through very uh, tough time emotionally to be contained apart from family and friends it's difficult for humans the world over i think every country is seeing that but italians are extremely sociable and gregarious and for them to be kept away from each other where family is at the heart of everything is very very tough for them to not be able to meet up and hug each other and kiss each other all these things that we take for granted here in italy that's actually probably hit this country harder than others in that sense. Um, but we have been responding, I think the majority of us are responding here with a lot of stoicism, a lot of quiet acceptance. Um, there are instances that you may have seen on the internet of people coming out onto their balconies and singing to each other to help with the loneliness, playing an instrument. Um, also, children have been painting rainbows since this began, which has also spread through the rest of the world as a symbol of hope, uh, writing inspirational phrases such as tutto bene," which means everything will be okay. So there is a lot of optimism through this. Uh, and I think altruism, maybe for the first time in a long time, people are learning to think of others before themselves because, as I mentioned, the majority of us are adhering to the lockdown restrictions and doing what, what is needed to see the flattening of the curve that we think has started here in Italy.
1: Just very briefly, to stay with you, Kylie, before I come back to the professor, um, you've obviously um uh, witnessed the mood, you've seen some levels of uh, trying to combat the negativity with some optimism, but what are some of the learnings that you believe uh, we, Italy, can share with the, rest, with the rest of the globe in terms of understanding how best to combat this
3: pandemic? I think it's essential that we listen to the experts, what the scientists are saying, what the authorities are telling us. It has been extreme here, but Clearly this virus is extremely contagious and dangerous, so if we are being told to stay at home and self-isolate, keep our distance, wash our hands, be vigilant, be good citizens, then that is what we must do. I think there is a sense that if it hasn't hit you as hard as it has maybe in Italy yet, you may feel like that's a foreign problem, that's something that's happening elsewhere, it doesn't apply to me, it doesn't apply to my family, but it really does it closes in faster than you think. So it's quite frustrating not to see other countries taking the benefit of hindsight. What an unusual situation we find ourselves in where you have hindsight as events are unfolding. Other countries have that from China, from us here in Italy, and the message is stay at home. We were told to stay at home. And other countries are being maybe asked to or reduce your Uh, distancing from other people just contain stay at home stop the spread of the disease and get ahead of the curve it's senseless to see this amount these amount of cases and deaths rising when you know what happens you know how this unfolds so keep yourselves contained keep yourselves happy at home and there are definitely so many ways to get through it
1: Prof, let's rope you in here as well to share some of your feedback and insight. Uh, Carly's given us a very wonderful description of the reality on the ground in Italy. But another economy that we worried about has certainly got to be the UK. Uh, Of course, uh, government has tried to implement a few measures to actually um, um, uh, mitigate against further risk. But of course, uh, all headlines being focused on the leadership at the moment as the prime minister uh, is still in ICU. But what do you make of the measures that uh, the UK has implemented in order to counteract the effects of COVID-19?
0: Well, every country has modified the recommendations that WHO has made based on their own situation and their own possibility. The UK has elected recently to only test people who are sick and who are looking like they need to be hospitalized. And if they're positive, they're isolated in the hospital. And sometimes they do trace contacts and test those contacts of people who are known to be infected. And those contacts are also isolated but that's a minor strategy within uk as opposed to asia where it's one of the major strategies so in uk the strategy is to flatten the curve of patients who are arriving at the hospital so they don't, don't end up with the situation as carla just described in italy where hospitals are overwhelmed with the number of patients. And in UK, as in other countries, where there have been these lockdowns, these forced physical distancing of people, it has proven to be effective in flattening the curve. And UK and other countries in Europe are beginning to see that that curve of patients who have to be admitted to hospital and especially to intensive care with ventilators is decreasing, which is the target in Europe. So we're seeing that these measures are having an effect. But it's important, as Carla said also, to remember that the most important way to stop this infection is to understand by everyone to understand How they can protect themselves and at the same time protect others protect themselves by physical distancing washing hands doing the things that they need to do to make sure that they don't get infected and at the same time protecting others if they are sick by isolating and by wearing a mask if they're in close proximity to someone who they can't physical distance from.
1: I'd like to get your thoughts and perspective on Sub-Saharan Africa, Prof. Uh, you uh, spent some time for the center at the Centers for Disease Control here in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, and of course dealing with Ebola at the time, which was slightly, something slightly different. But as we look at how the continent has actually responded to the COVID-19 crisis, what do you make of the response? Uh, various cities and countries in lockdown as well, but most importantly, what is the outlook like um, for Sub-Saharan Africa in managing um, this particular outbreak?
0: Well, in sub-Saharan Africa, there are some very strong institutions now. There's the strong Africa CDC in Addis Ababa, and there's strong, for example, Nigerian Center for Disease Control in Nigeria. And these institutions, along with uh, the uh, political um, institutions within Africa, have been working with the World Health Organization to strengthen laboratory testing in all countries, and also to strengthen disease detection systems. And so we are seeing that now Africa is beginning to see um, an outbreak occur in many different countries. South Africa certainly has a a major outbreak, but other Sub-Saharan Africa countries are also beginning to identify the um, COVID-19 in their countries. But remember, Africa is quite a young population as compared to Europe and North America. And therefore, they may not be seeing the same manifestations as are occurring in other continents because of their young populations. They may see that there are fewer people who are seriously ill because of the fact that it's the elderly and those who have comorbidities or those who end up unfortunately, in intensive care units and on ventilators. So hopefully the disease in sub-Saharan Africa will be a bit different than it is in other continents. And I believe that Africa has developed the capacities through its experience with Ebola outbreaks and others to deal with this infection quite, quite well because Africa has a wonderful system of traditional leaders who, if empowered to understand what's going on, can help their communities remain free of infection.
1: Prof, to stay with you, what's quite clear is that you talk about leadership, and that's proven to be quite critical as we take a look at governments across the globe. But uh, it seems as though their mandates have also been slightly disjointed. There's a difference in some of the objectives that seek to be attained uh, from governments in Asia, Sweden, uh, as well as Europe. But give us your understanding of the various goals uh, and if we are actually on track to meet the objectives that governments have set for themselves.
0: Thanks for that question. Yeah, I think um, the goals have been different in different parts of the world in in Asia. Um, these are countries that have had major impact from the SARS outbreak in 2003, and they were in many ways better prepared than were countries elsewhere. So Asian countries immediately began a strategy of trying to maintain low levels of community transmission of this virus. They jumped on every outbreak. They traced the contacts of people who were known to be infected. They tested them, they isolated them. And at the same time, they continued with business as usual in certain sectors, helping the people understand that they were empowered to protect themselves and protect others. And they've had good success in keeping the outbreak at a low level in communities, under the uh, reproductive number of one, which is that magic number. A reproductive number of one means that one person is infected from each infected person. And they've been able to keep it under one, which is a sign that they've had good success, but it's gradually creeping upwards. But they've, they've had as a target, keep community transmission low. In Europe, they had time to prepare, but many countries weren't prepared when they had importations. And they didn't jump on them the same way as they did in Asia. And in Europe, the target now is flatten the curve of people arriving in hospitals so that they can be sure that their hospitals can deal with the massive number of patients who are being infected by community circulation. Sweden is one of the exceptions in Europe. Sweden's philosophy is that people can do their own physical distancing. The government does not need to force this on them they should understand how to physical distance and how to prevent themselves from getting infected. And they've put the responsibility on their citizens to protect themselves and prevent infection of others. In North America, they've followed more or less the strategy in most of Europe in trying to flatten that curve, which is arriving at the hospital and needs hospitalization. And they've done a fairly um, good job in beginning to see an impact on flattening the curve in places like New York. So all countries have different strategies and mixed strategies within continents themselves. And so what we're seeing is Africa has decreased community transmission and continues to work on that. Europe and North America are trying to flatten the curve and make sure that what occurs doesn't overwhelm their hospital systems.
1: I'd like us to get into some of the numbers now, uh, uh, given that this is a conversation driven by investing wealth and investment. And Rick, this speaks right to your day job, uh, which is for looking and seeking for investment opportunities uh, across the globe uh, and understanding uh, where further growth and sustainable wealth can be created from. I am assuming that COVID-19 in the last month has really wrecked some kind of uh, havoc for the investment fraternity. But what have you seen in terms of some of the companies as well as the uh, areas where you seek future investment from and just what the economic and financial consequences of COVID-19 have been?
2: Thanks, Gugu. Yeah, this has certainly been one of the fastest and steepest equity market meltdowns that we've seen in history over the last 100 years. Um, Quarantine has quite obviously brought an abrupt end to all economic activity. Uh, For example, you've seen the demand for oil down 25% here on year. So uh, we've had a bit of a recovery in the last week or two, and global markets are probably now down about 20% in dollars for this year, uh, which means that we are now starting to see some selective opportunities that just weren't there six weeks ago. This allows us to buy some great quality, fundamentally sound businesses at, at much more reasonable valuations. Um, just in terms of our approach to, to managing money, uh, we like to invest in good quality global growth, large cap companies uh, with sustainable competitive advantages or kind of the, the investment moats that Warren Buffett talks about. Um, typically these kinds of businesses have high returns and margins, uh, persistence of profitability, stable and, and non-variable earnings growth through different market cycles and strong cash strong cash generation. Uh, And what we've practically seen in this meltdown is that quality as an investment style or approach, and hence our own portfolio, has actually outperformed the broader market and other investment styles. Um, In fact, the bigger the drawdown, the greater the extent to which quality tends to outperform. Uh, It's almost a case of the strong getting stronger. Uh, Great companies are hard to kill off, and quality and leadership persist. And conversely, I guess, you know, more structurally challenged businesses or those which are too leveraged, capital intensive or cyclical, uh, they've really been found wanting in the sell-off and will probably continue to be over the next three to four months.
1: That says quite a lot there, Rick, and uh, certainly builds up to uh, an earlier theme that you mentioned, how the virus actually was working on the weak spots within your body and in your healthcare system. Seems as though that's exactly what COVID-19 has also done in terms of companies and the markets, identifying their weaknesses. Prof, I'd like to come back to you briefly, and um, uh, I can just imagine how your days have changed in terms of the meetings and the constant updates that you have with your counterparts at the World Health Organization. But give us some insight as, as to what a typical day in your life has been since the significant breakout of this uh, pandemic? And and most importantly, how is it that you're partnering up with many of your global counterparts to source solutions um, that are globally relevant?
0: You know, I think what's really important about this outbreak is that despite geopolitical tensions that occur within the world, the scientists and the technical people have been able to work together very well and we, a very short period of time, understand most of the important issues about this outbreak. What's been very difficult has been some of the models that have been done in the epidemiological modeling that suggests that possibly 80 uh, percent of the population has already been infected or different models that suggest different figures. It's been very difficult for the public to understand these models because these models are not meant for the public. They're meant for the public health community so that they can plan both for a best case and a worst case scenario. Unfortunately, what people understand most is the worst case. And that's what the press picks up and puts out. And then that causes really undue concern and panic. I think that the world must understand that there is a good basis of intellectual activity going into this outbreak that will begin to solve the problems that are occurring. It will give the understanding necessary for governments to do what they need to do. But that will only occur if governments also are willing to listen to the technical advice and not insert their political decisions on top of what's recommended by their advisors. So we need to balance the political with the technical as we learn more and make sure that the politics are driving sound tech, sound uh, Interventions that can help to stop this outbreak. So I've learned a lot in the last few weeks myself um, mainly by having video conferences such as this um, It's it's been wonderful for the environment as everybody knows there's no more this layer of pollution That's been occurring in many cities around the world. It's wonderful for helping us not to hop on an airplane for meetings, but rather to do those meetings by um, by platforms such as we're using today, in order that we can discuss um, one-to-one or group in groups the issues. And so we're learning a new way of working that hopefully will make an impact in the future. And we will not only continue to work closely together by the um, internet and platforms that have been set up on the internet, but also, um, not abusing the environment as we have we've been doing in the past by just hopping on an airplane and saying we need to go to a face-to-face meeting. So I think we're all learning a lot, I am, and I'm understanding that it can be just as effective to sit and talk with people as we're doing now as it can be to meet face-to-face.
1: Prof, to build up on that, do you think that this is also shifting and changing the narrative in terms of conversations that governments, organizations, and the world over needs to have in terms of basic access to health care uh, and basic hygiene practices?
0: Well, I hope it is. And, and we all would hope that all countries will strengthen their health systems now to be able to take care of all people within that system. But, you know, what, what people are predicting is that the inequalities was, which existed Before this outbreak occurred, and those inequalities are in every country of the world, that those inequalities will be even greater after this outbreak is over. And that's a real disappointing outcome of this outbreak, and we'll have to work very hard to make sure that those differences don't continue uh, to to impede good health for all.
1: Pali, I'd like to rope you back into the conversation and this time really building up on on your personal experience, what you've shared with us in terms of what we see in Italy, but also in terms of uh, the interactions you've had with uh, multiple media agencies and your job fundamentally being based on human interaction, whether it's scuba diving, instructing, whether it's teaching foreign languages or or other methods of interaction that you have with uh, much of the public. This must really have shifted your mindset in terms of how humanity needs to uh, approach life. Uh, an understanding of the environment, as we mentioned by the Prof, an understanding of the economic ramifications, and also an understanding of our interactions with each other as human beings. but uh, with that said what what are some of the key elements that you 've learned uh, in terms of um, how this changes your perspective of uh, basic human interactions, much of which is based on your on your work and your, and your growth in your career
3: mm. it 's inevitably led to a lot of deep reflection being in containment, and as you said, a lot of my work in the past few years has been. Founded on actual physical human interaction, um, we should be changed as humans from this. I am changed as a human from this i I was always always very um, focused on nature protection, and as Professor David mentioned that it's amazing to see how nature can recover if we as humans allow it to, and we will need to change how we operate in the future I think perhaps we can shift more and more jobs to a digital space. There are some that are very difficult too, of course, Um, but he mentioned simple meetings. There is no need to have face-to-face meetings for every issue. As we've discovered, we can do this online. So I think as humans, we do need to reassess, actually, what is a want, what is a need? And we are learning that now at this phase of lockdown. We're also learning to slow down. That comes along with that. Um, be grateful for, for the small things, appreciate the little things. I think we're always on fast forward and we don't notice something simple and beautiful. It sounds maybe ridiculous, but to stop and look at a flower, but it really does change our, our perspective as humans. And maybe the age of convenience will be over. Maybe we'll focus on quality and not quantity. Uh, and a more wholesome life. I think what is really obvious to me at this point is that even though we have become so independent and self-sufficient as humans, this pandemic has taught us we do need each other. We rely on each other to survive and in the future that will be key, to look out for each other, support each other and protect this planet, our only home.
1: Key lessons there, uh, Carly, and thank you so much for sharing that with us. Rick, there is a very critical question that's come through, and uh, one that actually asks for your outlook and overview, uh, a high-level outlook in terms of what the South African economy might look like in 2020 in the short to medium term.
2: Thanks. uh, Thanks, Gugu. Yeah, I mean, look, South Africa is probably in a more precarious position than many of the sort of G20 countries around the world. Prior to to COVID-19, obviously ESCOM was top of mind. At the beginning of this year, most market commentators were probably looking for South African GDP growth in the region of about half percent to at best 0.9%. We're in the early days of seeing revisions to those numbers, but quite clearly we're going to see a recession this year. Um, Very likely that GDP growth could be down anywhere between 2 and 4%. So. you know, Certainly the central bank has stepped up, they've cut interest rates, they've implemented quantitative easing, uh, which they've needed to do, um, but what's worrying for South Africa is we just can't do the same on the fiscal side that you know, many of our trading partners and countries the, around the world can do. Um, our debt levels are too high, uh, the interest payments on those debt levels are too high. Uh, we've now been downgraded to junk status by Moody's as well, so all three rating agencies have us at junk. Uh, which means the cost of capital uh, for, for South Africa has gone up. Um, we just don't have the ammunition to, to pull us out of the, uh, the, this kind of growth quagmire that we find ourselves in. So, you know, it is worrying. Um, we're battening down the hatches. Um, lockdowns are important, but, but kind of given the shape of the economy, you know, there's the real risk that, you know, not going back to work at some point in time could do even more massive economic damage. Um, so from an investment perspective, it's very tricky. Uh, the GDP outlook is worsening in South Africa. Um, you know, from, from an equity valuation perspective, valuations are looking very attractive. I think the 12-month forward P of the local stock market is less than nine times. It's as cheap as chips, it's as cheap as it's ever been. Um, but you know, just because you're cheap doesn't mean you can't stay cheap. Um, and there's no doubt that the E and the PE is gonna decline significantly. Earnings are gonna go backwards. So, um, you know, we're in a tough place. We've all got to put our heads together and you're starting to see some of that. I think uh, our president and our health minister have come across incredibly well, been well received globally. Um, This is a time for for politicians to stand tall and do what's required. And certainly some of the stuff we're seeing at the moment is pleasing. Um, And we hopefully, you know, in in a weird kind of way, COVID will now give the president the mandate to kickstart the economy.
1: Well, we certainly hope so, uh, in trying to uplift uh, the economic quagmire, as you say, that we find ourselves in. And uh, Prof, as we wrap up today's conversation, I'd like to come to you. As both Akali as well as uh, Rick have mentioned, we are essentially arming ourselves with the knowledge that collaboration is key. We're arming ourselves with knowledge. We're on the front lines by uh, abiding by the lockdown rules, hand sanitizers in arms, masks on faces, um, but where are we, and, and what words of confidence can you share with us, perhaps as foot soldiers, as a global economy and global citizens, in understanding where we are in terms of combating this war against COVID-19? And I guess your words of confidence to alleviate some of the anxiety and pressures that many of us might be feeling.
0: Well, well Gugu, I think we all have the tools that we need. You know, we can, we're waiting for a vaccine, we're hoping for a vaccine, we're hoping for drugs. But within us, we each know how we can prevent this infection from touching us and at the same time prevent others from getting infected. And I think that's the most important message to put out today, whether it's taken by traditional leaders to use as they use, for example, in Ebola, where Moyembe, who was the first doctor and Western trained doctor ever to see Ebola in 1976 and still goes to Ebola outbreaks, doesn't go to the hospital first, he goes to the community leaders first. And he tells them in their language, this is a disease which is caused by evil spirits within the bodies of those who are sick. And those spirits are trying to get out. And if they get out, they will infect you. So if you touch that person, or if you touch a dead body that's died with those evil spirits inside, they will come to you and cause you to be sick. With simple language such as that, Moyambi is able to convince the communities of the importance of working together to stop this outbreak as the teams come in to help them. That's the message I'd like to portray today is that everybody has within them the power to not only slow down transmission of this outbreak, but to prevent others from becoming infected.
1: Thank you so much for that feedback there, Prof. We really appreciate the insight that you've been able to share with us. A big thank you to you as well for joining us for this critical conversation, which really speaks to a heightened sense of increased collaboration across the globe, as well as in the local communities we work with, changing our mindset as humanity in terms of how we interact with each other and with our environment, and most importantly, remaining calm as has been mentioned by Rick, in terms of understanding the economic challenges and economic ramifications that we'll face in the upcoming months. But having a long-term strategy, remaining focused and calm, despite all this noise in the market, is what will see us through. We trust that you've enjoyed this fifth webcast that has been brought to you by Investec Wealth and Investment. We certainly look forward to joining you in conversation yet again next week Thursday on this particular platform. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation.
2: Investec Wealth and Investment, a division of Investec Securities Proprietary Limited, is an authorized financial services provider and member of the JSC.